first reading can be found on page 1044. It's Luke 12, 1 to 12, page 1044. And the heading is Warnings and Encouragements. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This is the word of the Lord. For our second reading, we're in the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 4, which can be found on page 544 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 4, page 544. Answer me when I call you. O my righteous God, give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. 
you have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Could you keep your Bibles open, please, at Psalm 4? Uh, It will help you and certainly me if you can follow uh, through uh, as we go. Well, many of us here may know the symptoms of what is known as restless leg syndrome. You get it in bed at night. It's a tingling, creepy, crawly feeling that uh, causes an overwhelming urge to move your legs. It's not pain, but your legs are restless and it keeps you awake. One unnamed writer uh, thinking about this Psalm 4 in an article on Psalm 4 has described what David is feeling as restless prayer syndrome. But before we go further and think about restless prayer syndrome, let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which is so relevant to us today. Words that were written thousands of years ago, uh, you by your spirit can take and apply to us. And so I pray that each one of us here this morning, whatever our circumstances, may leave having a sense that you have spoken directly to us and that we may act on what you've said. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is restless prayer syndrome? Uh, We may know all about that too. Uh, You may have an issue, a worry, or a concern that leaves you lying awake at night. Your mind is tossing and turning. You're unable to stay still. And your prayers leave you feeling restless, just as anxious as before you started to pray. Whatever you want to call it, here is a psalm that can give us, I believe, real encouragement when we find ourselves in a difficult situation hemmed in by circumstances and unable to sleep. And I was so encouraged by Tim's prayer, actually, where he said, just think of one thing this coming week that is a challenge to you. I knew immediately what my one thing was. And it was lovely to feel we could bring it to God and know that he would um, act in it. Um, The background to the psalm is not specified. It says you'll see at the beginning for the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Uh, We're told, as I've said, it was written by David, and clearly what David writes is of such importance that he intends it to be part of the people's worship. Now, many commentators link this with Psalm 3, the one uh, before it, and you'll see there it's described as a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Absalom conspired against his father. He was eventually killed in a battle um, with um, David's men, uh, by Joab, who was David's commander. There were, if you like, two armies set up, and this terrible uh, battle ensued in which Absalom was eventually killed. Um, now, there are many um, similarities between Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. Whether Psalm 4 is linked to the trouble with Absalom and his men is not certain, but the feelings that David describes of humiliation, look at uh, Verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? Being surrounded by lies, where he talks about delusions. Exasperation in verse 4. And gloom, verse 6. That's to quote the commentator David Kidner, who's written a wonderful commentary on the Psalms. 
These, Derek Kidner, sorry. These could arise in any person's life, all of these things. So in one sense, the circumstances don't matter. What matters is how they apply to us. The psalm falls into three parts. Verse 1, the psalmist speaks to God. Verses 2 to 5, he speaks to various groups of people. And verses 6 to 8, he's speaking again to God. And the mood of the psalmist, and I think this is the wonderful thing about it, it moves from anxious distress in the beginning to being wonderfully peaceful and calm at the end. How does the psalmist get there from being in great distress to uh, the way he speaks at the end of the psalm? Well, let's think about that. First of all, he reminds himself who God is. Look at verse 1. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. That phrase, my righteous God, appears nowhere else in scripture. It could also be translated as the God of my righteousness. And in his distress, the, the psalmist first considers who God is. Give me relief from my distress may be better translated, in fact, you have given me relief from my distress. Again, commentators believe that what is actually happening here is a reminder of how God has helped him in the past. In other words, God has done that so he can come now with confidence that God will have mercy on him and that God will hear his prayer. Many of you may have heard of Charles Spurgeon, a wonderful 19th century Baptist preacher and if you will forgive the, the quaint language, I think he's got something very valuable to say about the God of my righteousness. He says this, It means thou art the author, the witness, the maintainer, the judge, and the uh, um, bringer of my righteousness. To thee I appeal from the harsh judgments of men. And Spurgeon goes on, Here in his wisdom, let us imitate it and always take our suit or request not to the petty courts of human opinion, but into the superior court, the king's bench of heaven. It's not, of course, that we are righteous of ourselves, but once we have committed our lives personally to the Lord Jesus Christ, then, as someone has said, when God looks at us, he looks through Jesus' tinted spectacles. And if God has won salvation or righteousness for us, and we, of course, live in a different perspective from the psalmist. We know, looking back to the cross, all that Christ has done for us. If we have received that from the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, how can we fail to bring to him something which, by comparison, seems very tiny, namely the opinion of human beings, or rather what they can do to us? And if you haven't read it, can I encourage you to take as one of your summer reading books um, this, uh, the book by Jim Packer called Knowing God, and I think there's a copy over there. It's certainly on our reading list. It's an absolute classic. Um, and listen to what um, Dr. Packer says about people who know God. People, he says, who know God have great energy for God. They have great thoughts of God. They show great boldness for God, and they have great contentment in God. Now, we all come today from different situations. I don't know what you have on your mind, but if you're in any way anxious or worried about something, 
It could be your health, your finances, your marriage, your children, your work. Bring it to God. First remember who it is you're praying to. Then recall what he has done in the past and you will find you can pray with great confidence. Secondly, um, that growing confidence is seen as David applies what he knows of who God is to the various groups of people who are giving him concern. First of all, those who are opposing him. Look at verse 2. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. As we've heard, there were those out to ruin David's reputation, perhaps those who followed Absalom in his conspiracy. They wanted to shame him. They were people who lived on lies about the world and they worshipped false gods, perhaps the gods of success and power. What does David do? Well, he speaks to them. He speaks to them about where he stands in God. These people cannot touch David with their slander because God has set David apart for himself. He knows he is safe in God's protection. Indeed, nothing, be it critical words or harsh actions, can ultimately touch God's servant, who is now full of confidence that God hears him when he calls to him. Here is a man set on obeying God's ways, a faithful servant. And we all need to understand that when you're seeking to live as God's servant, as opposed to turning your back on him and living as you please, it will give you great confidence and security. In the New Testament, Christians are described as saints. Now, people often misunderstand this. Saints in biblical terms are simply, it means exactly the same, in fact, as David is saying here, um, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Um, We're not to think of people who are like plaster cast statues or particularly holy. Every Christian is a saint in God's eyes, set apart to live all out for him. Perhaps someone here knows what it is to be slandered. There may be office politics going on and you find yourself at the wrong end of it. Or someone has turned against you because you're a Christian. Remember what God is saying here. You are safe in God's hands. There is no need to be afraid. And if you remember in our second reading from Luke 12, Jesus said, don't be afraid of mere human beings. All they can do is kill you. And after that, they have no power over you. And Jesus says, I'll tell you who to be afraid of. Fear God. He is the one to really fear because he alone will determine your eternal destiny. So revere God, respect him, and you will never need to fear human beings again. That's the first group. Then the psalmist addresses those who are angry. Look at verse 4. In your anger, do not sin. When you're on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in God. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on this psalm, says that the Hebrew word here is ragaz, 
And that means to tremble, to shake or to quake, either in fear or anger. There may have been followers of David who were very angry at how he was being treated. He says to those followers, it's okay to be angry, but be careful what you do with it. Keep it to yourself, or you may say words you will regret when you're on your bed, verse 4. That is what can happen, isn't it? In the night, we go over and over something, some injustice done to us or somebody we love, or some hurtful remark. The psalmist says, be silent. Bring it all to God. Trust it to him, the one who will one day make all wrongs right. And that way, you won't sin in your anger and you will get to sleep. Finally, the psalmist turns to another group, again probably among his followers, and he prays again to God about those who are despairing and discouraged. Look at verse 6. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. It seems that there were people among his followers who had relied on material prosperity for them to feel good about life. Who, uh, for whom when the harvest was plentiful and there was lots of grain and new wine, they were fine. But if the harvest failed and they didn't feel so prosperous, they turned to despair. Now that is not the way of the man or woman of God. David prays that God will shine the light of his face on them. And that phrase is reminiscent of one of the most wonderful blessings in scripture. From Numbers 6 verses 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. David wants them to stop relying on outward circumstances for their contentment, but to rely instead on their relationship with the Lord. The Apostle Paul learned how to do that, and note he had to learn it. You will recall his words in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Paul said this, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now that is the voice of a man who knows deep contentment. And that is what David wants for his discouraged followers. He, like Paul, has discovered the secret which is to rely on God for our contentment and peace, not on outward circumstances. So he can truly say, which is glorious, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. And that's the secret for us too. I wonder if there's anyone here who's feeling discouraged or despairing as these people were. Maybe life has not turned out as you'd hoped. Maybe right now you're facing some very difficult circumstances. Do what David did. Go to God and ask him to give you a fresh vision of himself, of who he is, of his love for you, 
and of what he's done for you in the past, above all what he did for you on the cross. Ask him to give you that blessing from number six. As we come to Holy Communion in a moment, remind yourself that he went through an agonizing death on the cross that you personally might have eternal life. It's so easy, isn't it? If you are a member here, you take communion every two weeks. If you come to the evening service, you can have communion every week. And it's easy, isn't it, to start taking it for granted as we go up there just to go through the motions instead of saying to yourself, and I put myself here just as much as anyone else, what is this all about? What am I doing up here when I'm taking the bread and the wine? I'm remembering that Christ went through an agonizing death on the cross as he took my personal sins on himself and was separated from the Father. That was the true agony of the cross. He did all of that for me personally, for you personally, so that we might have the most amazing relationship with God and we might know that eternal life is our destiny and it starts the moment you commit your life personally to Christ. And if there's anyone here today who's not made that personal commitment, may I urge you to do so soon, today, so that you too may enter into the life that is life indeed, that life that takes you above all the materialism that can lead nowhere to a life that leads you into eternity with your destiny secure in God. And that brings us to our final point. Having reminded himself who God is, having applied that knowledge to the various people who are giving him concern, David now reaches the point where God has indeed given him relief from his distress. So thirdly, David now affirms the peace of mind that comes from being safe in God. Look at verse 8. I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Notice that it's only God, you alone, who can give us all this that we're talking about now. No other human being, no medication, nothing else can do it for us. And what does it mean to dwell in safety? Dwell it has that sense of permanence about it, to dwell in safety. Well, it does not mean we will have no trouble. Jesus said we would have trouble in this world. In John 16, 33, we read that, but he said, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. But he said we would have trouble. It does not mean um, that we will not die perhaps tragically before our time. But it does mean that our eternity is secure and we can face whatever is thrown at us in this life. It does mean peace of mind which no money can buy. It does mean we can face each day with confidence and we can sleep at night knowing that the almighty sovereign God is in control. We don't need to toss and turn worrying about people and circumstances. God is working his purposes out even as we sleep and his purposes for us are good. Peace, perfect peace. What a priceless gift that is. Let us pray. 
We sang at the beginning of the service that little refrain, Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. Father God, we thank you that whatever storms are going on in our lives, whatever storms we might face in the future, you are Lord. And therefore we can trust you and we can sleep securely. I pray that every single one of us today might know that peace that comes only from you because we are trusting only in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.